This episode of the Police One Podcast is sponsored by Officer Store. Learn more about getting the gear you need at prices you can afford by visiting officerstore.com. Courtesy of Officer Store, listeners receive 10% off now through December 31st using the promo code POLICE1. That's police and the number one. Hey, welcome back. You are listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley, and you are listening to the special year-end review of 2023 and walking into 2024 with our heads up and looking forward. And I am joined today by my debate foil and friend (laughs) and colleague, Dr. Joel Schultz. All right. Well, we are counting down the final days of 2023, and we're going to talk about the top 10 issues in policing today. And hey, if you're a listener and you disagree, well, jump in, drop me an email at policingmatters at police1.com, and my editor and me will take a look at it, get back to you, uh, maybe do an update to the show. But I'm sure we're missing something. Joel, you are the guest, so take it away. What's what's your first issue in 2023? Um, man, what, what an interesting year. Um, you know, in the surveys that, that uh, P1 has done, um, th- there's just so much residual from 2020. Uh, the George Floyd thing is still rippling, and who knows when that will be overtaken by, by something. Um, so I, I think one of the, the very interesting things is some of the backpedaling that has happened politically with the defund and police reform movement. And some of those things have stalled. Some of them have been repealed. Um, Oregon, you know, their, their drug legalization is, is, is coming into doubt. Um, you know, we all had doubts about it day one. Uh, Washington's rolling back their um, uh, their pursuit uh, restrictions and and uh, a, a lot of things like that are happening. Um, and I think that's on the mind and I might not zero in exactly on those 10 things that are that are on the list, but uh, the political climate I think has hopefully changed. Uh, part of that is always because of the fear of crime. Um, I, we, we have disagreements about whether crime has really skyrocketed. Uh, we, we say that, and it certainly is, is true in uh, certain urban areas. Um, you know, the UCR is so uh, averaged out that it's hard to get a, a picture of what's going on in, in your own neighborhood. And fear of crime and actual crime are never the same. So we, we, uh, our fear of crime is, is up, which is moving people back into a little bit more pro-police um, attitude i think and that's that's the hope um and kind of part of that too is it may be a separate topic or part of that is the concern um about uh, police prosecutions and whether those things are going to um let up a little bit or not not that we need to let cops get away with stuff um but you know i always felt fortunate that i got through my career without being civilly sued I don't know if you can say that or not. Probably not. Being um, from California, but but now we have to say, are you going to get through your career without being criminally prosecuted? Yeah. Well, you got me on that one because I've been sued a few times. Um, 
twice by cops, uh, one who later wrote a book, and I'm in three chapters, so I should get some residuals from that. But uh, yeah, it's it's quite a story. Um, I'll leave that for another time. But technology uh, is my first big issue. And I think a lot of what you just said deals with technology. And hopefully we could catch up and make some improvements in our FBI, UCR, and NIBRS, the National Incident-Based Reporting System. Uh, They rolled it out at the worst possible time. We knew it was coming. 2018, they were talking about it. 2019, they were going around the country uh, telling they had tech support. There's some short videos on YouTube about NIBRS. And then 2020, at the big rollout, you you nailed it. Uh, COVID hit and all bets were off. And so NIBRS reporting by individual agencies didn't seem to be a priority. And so now the effect is if you say, so what? So we're not, you know, putting data into this new database, which the improvements are that it's going to give so many more dimensions to the UCR, right? We're going to know more about offenders. We're going to know about weapons. We're going to know about victimology and you know, of course, place-based violence and crime, we're going to know more dimensions, many more, I think from eight to 32 different categories. But uh, the reporting is, it was somewhere at 60% uh, in 2021. I think we've crept up. We're probably at that 75 or so percent now, but still with that gap in information, you've got the pundits, and the anti-police, the reformers, all making up their own uh, narratives about how bad or how good crime stats are. So that's part of the problem. And I and I wish that we got some more support from DOJ, uh, from FBI to say, hey, we're going to come out, we're going to train civilian staff, and we're going to help support every agency by funding or giving partial funding for for stat keepers, because I think it is really important. It drives what we do. It drives our um, initiatives, our operations, our enforcement plans. So that's huge. Yeah, but, I, I don't know. I don't know how much funding uh, is available operationally. I just know that they've got that hammer. If you want to use our um, NCIC infrastructure, then you, you got to be a reporter, right? If you've got an ROA, you've got to be an ORI, you've got to be a reporter. But, uh, you know, it, it, you and I know as researchers, if you've got a 10-question survey, you're going to get better response than a 100-question survey because there's that fatigue. And I wonder about the accuracy of the results. And I'm a fan of UCR, but I am aware of the potential for abuse and manipulation and, and front-end uh, loading or unloading of, of, of crimes. Uh, I do appreciate the fact that they're including uh, assaults on officers more accurately now. You know, the old figure of 50,000 uh, officers injured every year, that's ridiculous. Out of 800,000 cops, no, uh, it's its multiples of that. Um, so, yeah, that that's an interesting development, and, and we certainly need some more support on that. I'm absolutely in agreement with you on that. Um, and then we've got the use of force reporting with a national database as well. So it does get more complex. At the same time, when you, you need man hours on the street, um, and, and and so the budgets are being stretched to accommodate that without any reciprocal funding. So I think that's a, I think that's a great point. Yeah, and then uh, force options. So I, I 
I um, sort of dovetailed the force options into my technology uh, issue. Uh, I was at Ailita, and I know you were too. I guess we just missed each other uh, this Everybody year. Everybody missed me. <laughs> <laughs> in St. Louis. Uh, but I got a chance to operate the Taser 10. Uh, I I am not, you know, any sort of uh, great shot, but at 30 feet, I was able to hit the target so accurately with the Taser 10, and the Taser 10 gives multiple uh, options, multiple uh, charges in the weapon to to fire over and over again. I think that's huge when, you know, the older models, you had the one shot and that was that, and then you went hands-on or, or worse. Um, other uh, technology-related weapons, the Bola Wrap, I've seen that operated uh, several times, Orlando at the FBI conference. At Ailita, again, I've got a video of them using the the Bola wrap, and I know there's arguments against the the wrap, but if everybody kept in mind that the taser, the Bola, and some of these other things would be used as an option if available, not to sacrifice yourself or uh, put yourself in harm's way, but at least have an option, give it a whirl. If it doesn't work, then you go to the, your secondary option, and you always have live fire as a backup in cases where the suspect has a weapon. Um, and also there's there's a, a technology called the glove and it looks like a pair of work gloves, but they're electrically charged. They're ECW. And when you put hands on skin, you send an electrical charge similar to the taser. And I've seen that be pretty effective. I felt the charge for an instant and it was enough uh, to get any kind of compliance out of me. So it's nice to see those. Yeah. Filling in the gaps when, since you mentioned 2020, George Floyd, we lost the carotid almost nationally, the carotid restraint, when clearly there was no direct uh, result uh, or effect on George Floyd from the carotid restraint. No. But but the, the nation, there was such a moral panic that legislators and local jurisdictions said, okay, let's stay away from the neck period. And I think we really lost a great opportunity, a great use of force option. And it's nice to see technology uh, jumping ahead and, and filling in the gaps a little bit. And I hopefully we're gonna see many more in 2024 and beyond. I know Rick Smith at Axon has some really great ideas. I, I hate losing those those options. Uh, you know, we 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 pretty much uh, put a dark cloud over the side handle baton um, after after the Rodney King arrest, and uh, of course, LA was kind of ahead of the game on on. Uh, I, I I hate it when I hear about chokeholds. You know, and some of the legislation, if you look carefully, it doesn't really um, prohibit the the neck restraints. Uh, it 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 describes the choking as something we already don't do anyway. In fact, take great care to protect that. Can I, do we have time for me to ask you about the Taser 10? Because I, I didn't know, I, I, I just read a little bit. Uh, what's this about a second trigger pull? Is that a second charge or is it like one probe at a time? It, it, it almost looks like a honeycomb where the cartridge uh, holds multiple shots uh, at the same time. And as I recall, uh, you could shoot if it doesn't, you don't engage or it, you don't affect the, the charge between the two probes, 
you could fire again. And as it says, taser 10, I, I would imagine that you get 10 attempts at up to 10 attempts, or maybe you have multiple suspects and, um, I, you know, I'd have to uh, go to their website and take a look at the the specifics, but very effective in the long range capability. You don't have to get up onto the, you know, you have the ability to div give a contact shot, but by then you're hands on anyhow. But I love the idea that you can start it at that 30 foot uh, level. I mean, you know, we talk about edged weapons, it might be something to consider at 25, 35 feet and, uh, you know, without effect, then you, you go to your backup. Uh, but at least it gives that option. And the, the, what really struck me was the accuracy. I, I hope that it's not, uh, and I haven't had my hands on one and I, did, I haven't gone to any of the uh, trade shows. I didn't see the, the one at Ilita or ICP or, or uh, even SHOT Show this year. Um, but do you remember the, the, the three cartridge taser they came out with and you could, you know, you could have three people on the ground and shock this one and not that one and reshock this one. And it was just too complex for those high tension moments. So I'm, I'm curious what the field will reveal about this uh, X10, but it, uh, it's, it's very exciting. And we also, I think we lost the, sh the shotgun taser, right? I don't think that's, uh, really gained wide use as a less lethal. That was a really wicked uh, a piece of armament. The the, the uh, projectile went out on its own, wasn't wired, but it was just wired to itself. Mm. And so you had kind of a string along behind it and you'd get the, the first cartridge here and then the other part would kind of swing down. And I think the thinking was that anybody that gets hit with that is going to grab themselves and basically complete the circuit on their own. So... Um, <laughs> Anyway, yeah, yeah, this, uh, and, and I, I remember my friend, uh, our friend, uh, Dan Marcoux, um, talking about some departments say, okay, you only have three things on your belt, you know, okay, you got the bullet wrap, you got the taser, you got the firearm, you, you get all this, all this kind of stuff, and, uh, uh, and, and I asked him if he thought, in his expertise, if you would lose some reaction time, and he said, if I remember to, to quote him accurately, he said, if you are proficient with everything on your belt, then you can have everything on your belt, you know, whether it's mm. a stick or a taser or a bowler wrap. So, um, and, uh, you know, so many cops now are using the, the, uh, the carrier, which is great. Um, but you know, it looks like a, it looks like a convenience store, <laughs> all the stuff. And, and, uh, so that, that's new to me. I, that's, that's past my, that was past my active, uh, era. Yeah. I wrote a little bit about that. The, the load, bearing vests and you know how many weapons do we make accessible to the subject yes and Great if point. we have scissors or we have a knife or i i even saw one on social media last week uh where someone had their firearm on their load bearing vest and i just thought oh my god that can't be good yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, I have a problem with this, uh, uh, seagull thing where they, you know, you're always tucked into the vest like that. I'm like, right, right. I don't know. Yeah. But I'm, All right. I'm, I'm old school. <laughs> okay. So we'll talk about ALPRs and cameras and drones and AI later on, but what's your, what's your next big issue for 23? 
Well, I, you know, I, I know you had on your list uh, when we had uh, had some discussion about what to talk about today is uh, uh, some technology regarding pursuits. Um, and one of the things that in, in doing a year in review of officer deaths, I'm seeing cops and, and it's been this way for a long time, getting killed by putting out the, the spikes to stop a pursuit. Um, and I, I just don't know, I don't know what to do about that, but that's, that's too many cops. Yeah, um, I know every year we have at least uh, one officer killed in related to the use of uh, spikes. Um, I'm not sure if spike strips is the, the brand name, but the, everybody knows or refers to them as a spike strip where the officer ahead of the chase um, in attempt to disable the offender's vehicle positions themselves ahead, rolls out the spike strips uh, to, to nail the, the wheels of that car and then retract them so that the the pursuit officer doesn't get their tires blown out. And uh, we've had officers uh, lose their hands. Uh, you've had subjects, suspects avoiding the strip uh, deployment and hitting the officer instead, or actually veering at the officer intentionally. Um, I think in 2023, we had already um, in November three officer deaths related to spike strip deployment. So I know some jurisdictions are saying not only because of police officers, but because of pedestrians and other third party uh, vehicle uh, operators are injured or killed as a result of the deployment that they've stopped pursuits altogether. Uh, some agencies like mine would order the supervisor to jump on every pursuit, ask a couple of questions about speed, location, offense, and things like that, and then either agree or terminate the pursuit. And so I think there's a real problem with a policy that just says we're not going to chase because sooner, not later, the offender's going to know about the policy and then you know, like we've seen with these uh, organized retail thefts and auto break-ins, they know that they can do it quickly, they can get away, and they, there's no fear of pursuit. So uh, I know there's a sideshow epidemic all over the country now. And uh, San Diego uh, at IACP, I talked to the Sergeant Ample who talked about their strategy of using multiple jurisdictions and agencies to essentially surround and take over the sideshow, grab the offenders, grab their vehicles, tow the vehicles, lean sail them. And uh, they have a great relationship with their prosecutors and they prosecute, which is really important. They prosecute the drivers, the lookouts, and even some of the participants. And so we hit them in the pocketbook, we take away their their beater, their vehicle, and we auction them off, and that should be that. So the idea of hands off, we don't want anybody to get hurt, uh, we don't want to make the situation worse, I think that that's a message we don't want to convey because we've seen uh, the opposite happen. We've seen more people hurt because these shows just get bigger and bigger and they draw more people and... Uh, you know, there are viral videos of people getting hit by these uh, sideshow vehicles just, you know, whipping around um, to to the uh, the surrounding uh, crowd of uh, on, uh, onlookers and supporters. 
And I, I think there's good public support for that kind of enforcement. And obviously, as you say, the prosecutor, prosecutorial support is essential. And the Supreme Court has really been pretty kind to law enforcement in recognizing the deadly force um, potential or the deadly potential of, of offenders and uh, in, 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 in not cutting us off at the, at the knees and saying, no, you can, can never shoot these guys. You can never chase these guys down. So um, that's that's been interesting. I, I'm. I, I'm still concerned about officer safety, even in those situations. Um, uh, so many of our officer deaths, going back over uh, ODMP uh, this last year, are, are still dying in crashes. And it's not usually from pursuits, it's usually from response. Um, and so, uh, not, again, not sure what to do with that other than to tell guys to wear your seatbelt and slow down. Yeah, I mean, those are two of the tenets of below 100 that say wear your seatbelt, uh, win, right? What's important now? Like, how bad do I have to get this guy? How bad do I want this guy? Um, is it safe uh, for people in the street? Are you going to come up to a school zone, at, you know, at school hours? Um, yeah. Uh, at some point, um, it's hard, especially to be objective when you're in the pursuit. But that's why we have the the supervisors, uh, you know, off scene making the call. But we have we also have some great technology. The Star Chase device is one that can be shot from the officer's vehicle onto it essentially just shoots this uh, magnet uh, device that will then track the vehicle. And we've seen these vehicles used in some of these uh, robberies or ram raiding or uh, vehicle break-ins and they're stolen or they have no plates. And so the idea of tracking them down by the plates, right. if you find it, it's stolen. You still don't know who the, the suspect is, but in this case, you have the actual vehicle. So you can terminate or back off the pursuit. If you have air support or if you have drone support, uh, you can definitely track it on a computer, on a mobile video terminal, if you have the capability and then catch up to the at least the vehicle after the fact. The grappler is this device. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it where it shoots, attaches to a wheel, uh, essentially puts the clamp down on the wheel. It's still attached to the, the officer's uh, vehicle and it essentially wraps up, uh, disables that vehicle and brings it to a, a safe stop as opposed to the pit maneuver, the precision immobilization technique where you know once you tap the rear end of that pursued vehicle, you know, it's a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get after right. that. Well, you know, I, I started uh, policing in the late seventies, which means I worked with guys from the fifties and sixties. My, how things have changed um, in, in the, you know, their pursuit policy was you have your partner in the passenger seat, roll down the window and fire at them. Uh, but uh, yeah, thank God for technology. Yeah, those days are gone. They've got to be. <laughs> All right, what else? What else you got? Well, um, I, I, one of the things that 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 showed up on the P one survey was uh, fear of prosecution. Um, and you know, cops are they're afraid of ambushes, uh, which are is a continually increasing problem. Uh, responding to mass shootings, which. You know, they, I know they get overreported and overdefined, uh, but gosh, it is a plague on the on the country. Um, 
and then in the midst of, of these this perception of crime uh, rates going up and, and mass shootings happening more uh, frequently, uh, now you've got police out there who in their top five or top 10 areas of concern, and am I going to get prosecuted criminally and end up in, in jail for doing my job? Uh, and that's real. That's very real. Yeah, and and we've seen the the one prosecution in Florida of the officer who who failed to act or was uh, allegedly uh, failed to act, uh, stood by, radioed in, but didn't uh, you know intervene in any way. And that's a and I'm you know a lot of opinions on that, but I'm I'm glad he was acquitted because we we can't we can't don't can't go down that road until we start hiring officers with uh, uh, parapsychological uh, ESP about, you know, what's going on over here and what's going on behind my back and what this person's going to do. And, and uh, uh, the, the, the bright side of the prosecution of cops is that most of the time, if the right kind of testimony is allowed in court, and I've been shocked by how many courts refuse to let use of force experts testify, it's science, it's physics, uh, it's biology. Um, but so much of the time when you have uh, an officer with a jury, uh, the jury says, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else they could have done. You know, we have a case here in Colorado in, in Aurora uh, with Elijah McClain, and uh, uh, we've seen some, we've seen at least one acquittal uh, in that case. And again, I'm, I'm not for cops getting away with stuff. But there's so many factors that are, uh, I mean, thousands of factors that go into a decision um, that, uh, that prosecutors are, are not understanding, and they're they're yielding too often to political pressure, uh, mm -hmm. like that guy down in you know uh, Travis County, Austin, Texas, um, just, just dozens of of uh, uh, prosecutions against officers. In those, you know, I, I've been in and around riot situations. Those are not easy decisions to make, um, and and uh, we have to restore qualified immunity in those states like my beloved Colorado, which very short-sightedly got rid of uh, qualified immunity for officers. Um, so that that's a that's a real concern. So if if you were um, and, and I always recommended this, even though I never personally did it. If you don't have an attorney on speed dial as a police officer these days, you're missing an opportunity to stay out of jail. Yeah, I mean, I think 2023, we've um, turned it around a little bit. I know we've gotten rid of a couple of the prosecutors that right. uh, were, were very light on crime, but they were big on, you know, quote, reform and in San Francisco, we had a district attorney who charged five different police officer cases. And I would have loved to have been the expert on any of those because they were all totally justified. There were all um, incidents regarding training, incidents of proximity, incidents of assaults on the police officer before the force was used. Of the five prosecutions, I think two were actually acquitted and the other three dropped when that DA was recalled and a new DA was put in place. So I think we're turning the corner on that. I hope we are. I, I just saw a case, I forget what jurisdiction it was in, but uh, the district attorney essentially threw their hands up and said, well, you know, the, the grand jury's going to look at it 
and uh, they'll they'll decide. And to me, that's that's a cop out, <laughs> no pun intended. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's you know I've seen cases taken before the grand jury, and you know the old adage of you can indict a ham sandwich before a grand jury. I think that's so true because there's no defense allowed. It's all one-sided testimony. And uh, I saw it happen in San Francisco. And after the smoke cleared, a judge uh, decided that the officers involved were factually innocent, essentially wiping off the indictment from from any records. But still, that taint is there. And and the the idea that there, the the district attorney or the prosecutor or the state attorney is virtue signaling by going after officers to show. I mean, if like you say, if deemed appropriate, yeah, nobody wants a, a bad cop pulling shenanigans. But in cases where an officer is using force that is constitutionally protected and protected by their agency, it's just... It, it is damning on the profession, personally on the officer. That officer's never going to come back. If they do, I, I doubt that they're going to be as productive as they were before the indictment. So uh, it's time to, I mean, qualified immunity, that, they, the, the public was sold a bill of goods on the portrayal of qualified immunity. Qualified immunity wasn't a shield against all actions. If you... Right acted unconstitutionally or maliciously, you could still be prosecuted even with qualified immunity in place. And so I think in those areas where they did pull it back, it was just, it was a fraud. And we're gonna talk about repealing some legislation too uh, in a little bit. I I think, you know, police leaders need to uh, be out front in educating the public. You know, this call for accountability great, but it's redundant. We've had, you know, you can get department discipline. Um, you have the personal consequences of decisions that you make with your family and your finances and your career. You've got state prosecution. You've got state civil lawsuit. You've got federal prosecution. You've got federal uh, civil lawsuits. So there's, that's, that's six ways that we've had police accountability since the 14th Amendment was applied to the states in the 1960s. Um, so that the, the public just needs to understand something different than the narrative that they've been fed. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I want to talk to you about training issues, but first I want to take a minute and thank our sponsor today. Officer Store, equipping protectors with passion. That's how we operate and it's how we live. We understand that having the right gear can mean the difference between life and death. Our goal is to get you the gear you need when you need it at prices you can afford visit us at officerstore.com. And we're back and I'm speaking with Joel Schultz talking about the year roundup 2023, moving into 2024. And I want to talk about recruiting and recruiting innovations. Recruiting has been a bane on the profession long before 2020, but 2020 seemed to just you know, it was the perfect storm of the economy and George Floyd and reform movements and COVID. Uh, the impact was huge. The negative image of policing as being the the uniformed uh, visual point of government that was enforcing COVID laws, getting people off the beaches and 
out of movie theaters and off the streets at night. It was just so awful. And, you know, like I say, I think we were probably 15 years, at least a decade before 2020 in, in the dwindling numbers of uh, people applying to be police officers. And part of the reason, I think, what I hear from my students at school every semester is the process takes too long. I got a job somewhere else. Or if they went to multiple agencies, they went with the first agency hired that hired them, not so much the one of preference, but the one of expediency. And so I want to talk a little bit about the innovations where essentially I think it comes down to this. If you are still carrying a paper file on every candidate, if your background investigators are still driving around or making calls while people are on vacation or you're hiring uh, retired uh, cops to do backgrounds two days a week and the other days uh, those files sit languishing, uh, you're behind the curve. And there are companies out there that do the backgrounds. And I'm sure, you know, I'll hear from people taking pot shots at them and and any inadequacy there. But essentially, everything's done online. Uh, you can do an auto, a signature online. You can fill in the background and push the button and send it online. So the idea of generating paper just doesn't make sense. And then the idea of a test, uh, a written test uh, in a month from now. You're signing, you apply in a month, you could take the written test. And then two weeks after that, you can take uh, the physical test. And a month later, you can come in for an oral board. And, you know, it's ridiculous. So I think the agencies that are doing well, and I've seen it uh, as few as eight weeks uh, from application to hiring. I think that's the fastest I've seen it. Mm. The applicant uh, goes in, signs up, takes the written test that day. Uh, they take hair follicle samples for an uh, initial drug test. They copy their driver's license, make sure they have a clean driving record. Uh, and then they do some preliminary background things. And you, you'll know if you have a felon day two, right? And then clumping the other tests together. Maybe you take the oral board and the physical the next day. Maybe you take uh, the polygraph and the psych within a day or the same day. And uh, we're seeing innovations. Uh, I work with Rob Kate at Interview Now, and he's working on a candidate who can submit their profile with their preferences, uh, salary, cost of living, live in the mountains, live in the beach, uh, snow, uh, beach, sun, whatever. And then the agencies reach out to those candidates. And I think with today's Gen Z, that's what they want. They want to be drawn in as opposed to being passively recruited. So the idea of giving them what they're used to, social media, the phone that's attached to their hand, uh, all of those things, interactive capabilities of texting to a recruiter. When's the test again? Can I get a reminder? Yeah, it's a little bit of handholding, but if that's what it takes, then we should be doing those things. Well, again, I'm old school, and I and I agree with that. And uh, when I uh, when I was recruiting for <clears throat> for agencies, I would have one or two day testing to get all those things done because you're right, particularly in remote areas. Um, you know, if I were in the Denver area, it'd be different. But in remote areas, uh, you know, people are driving two or three hours 
uh, on multiple occasions. And, and yeah, that's, that's passe. My concern is that that waiting period was a test in and of itself of, uh, you know, maturity and persistence and, and those kind of things. And I think about, um, you know, the classic case, I know it's back in the seventies, but, uh, of Miami, you know, when they were, were very short on cops and they went through this accelerated process and they got a bunch of criminals and, and, uh, knuckleheads and paid for that. And I, I don't want to, I know there are other agencies that have had that uh, trouble. I just remember Miami in particular is the, uh, poster child for, for, uh, expedient hiring. Um, and again, different era technology, technologically, you, you couldn't look at their Facebook profile and see if they were, you know, doing whatever. Um, but there are other cities and, and I don't want to name any that and, and get that in a, uh, in a contest with whether that was true or not. But, uh, so I have some concerns about that and, and, but I do recognize that we don't have 50 applicants for every position like they did when I was competing for a job. Mm hmm. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I am talking about expediency without sacrifice, without um, making concessions to your thresholds. Right. So I'm not saying that we're taking a different applicant that we've taken before just this, to speed up the process. Of course, we've seen um, in cities and cities mm -hmm. in the east, cities in the south, I'm sure cities all over. But when you do compromise your standards i think that's when we make our biggest mistakes and it might take uh you know a year or two or five before uh you know these bad seeds turn into bad apples right. turn into a, a tree of fruition that we don't want on our streets and then we see it on the media so i think you, i think you're right there that we don't compromise we don't lower our standards but but my my goal is to speed up the process. Joel, you know, if you go to medical school, you are expected to be in school for six years. If you go to law school, four plus two. And so there's that expectation. But for policing to apply and then six months, nine months later, the agency calls you and says, hey, guess what? You, you know, we're, we're taking you in. The academy starts in two weeks. Uh you might be at a you know 180 degrees from where you were if you remember that you applied six or nine months prior. So I think it's just so unreasonable. I think there's so many ways that we can speed up the process. We can offer conditional employment at some uh, segment where we've done the criminal background, uh, we've done some psych testing, things like that. But that the that the process continues while the person's in the academy, maybe the first couple of weeks. And if we do find something in their background or they're disqualified for an injury or something, then they know full well at that conditional offer of employment that they may be asked to leave and there's not an issue. But the idea to just keep stringing people along for months and months and months just doesn't make sense to me. No, and it's, and it's a, you know, it's the economics of supply and demand. Like I said, you, you, you can't say, okay, well, we don't need the first 10 anyway. We'll just go to the other 40 that are, that want this desperately want this job. Um, because if, you know, if, if you're late to the sale, the shelf is going to be empty. And, and that's, that's what agencies are finding. It's, I, I, I will be interested in longitudinally 
um, the effects, probably mixed effects of these big bonuses and housing allowances and moving expenses and all this kind of stuff. Um, to me, for somebody who's always worked in, in uh, small agencies, the the dollars that some officers are getting, and I realize that a San Francisco dollar is different than a, uh, a Southern Colorado dollar, um, but the financial incentives out there for people who are increasingly uh, not required to have uh, a college education or um, uh, you know a pristine background, uh, really a great opportunity. Although I have to say, for the first time in my career in the last two or three years. I'm not enthusiastic about encouraging young people to go into law enforcement. Uh, it's just it's just a, a really, really difficult, challenging time. Hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. OK, I want to unpack a couple of things. Number one, the San Francisco dollar compared to the Colorado dollar. I think we're talking pesos in San Francisco, <laughs> Colorado dollars. Uh, but the gap in proactive policing, I think, you know, from what you just said, I, I'm on the other side of the spectrum where I am teaching 150 students per semester over four classes. And my message to them is it is a career. It is a noble career. I think you want to get into it. If you want to change, if you want to, you know, give back to your community it is a great opportunity. I have had so many great experiences and opportunities in my law enforcement career. Uh, you know, especially to them, I think right now, it's not so much things that they want, but experiences. And I think if we could bottle that and sell it. And yeah, there are challenges with public perception, social media, maybe peer pressure. I, I got a feel that that's changing. And Joel, when you came in, when I came in in 1980, um, we heard the grumblings from the, the guys who preceded us. And the WW2 vets were probably retiring when you were get, you know, getting on. The, the Vietnam vets were there and retiring when I got on. Uh, they were still grumbling about 1967 Miranda about right. how they were never going to ever catch another crook because they couldn't ask them anything. So I think it's a different set of problems today. I think it's evolving. And I hope that there's a bright side of this, that we're going to come out with um, educated people. I think people are going to see, I think the nation has seen what happens when we try these ridiculous reforms that when we water down prosecution, we, we, we come up with repealing uh, laws and we've seen the unintended awful consequences. I got to think that there's another side. There's a, there's an upswing to that pendulum. Yeah. Um, I, I, I agree with that. And I, and I, and I wrote, I think I wrote an article for P1 three or four years ago is, is the pendulum swinging in the other direction? Well, actually it was before George Floyd. So it was a, uh, uh, ironic article nice uh, jinx good but, good, <laughs> good jinx joel but you're right it, it'll swing back but we also have and again i just sound like an old guy complaining about the world going to hell in a handbasket but um i've worked in the school system uh, as a safety director and uh my wife's a teacher and you know you see the the disintegration of the family and the disintegration of 
uh, respect for American history and the respect for authority. And, and I don't, I don't mean to sound like a curmudgeon, um, but this is a different generation than the one that I grew up in. Uh, now I have high hopes, you know, there, there's America's been resilient all these years. Uh, and I, and I pray that it will continue to be, um, but you know, you think about even the, the military, there, there are people that are just not, we, we don't have the same pool of people, first of all, numbers, uh, because of the birth rate and then uh, physical fitness and then mentally fit and having the attitude that, uh, my God, this is the right thing to do. And I'm going to go serve, um, the, 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 the young people that are willing to, to fill those shoes and, and wear that badge behind 40 pounds of gear and get reported, get recorded 24 hours a day. Uh, they've got to be super. And, uh, so I have high hopes for the ones that are willing to, to stand in the gap. Yeah, for sure. So what do you got? Or, or should I move on to my next idea? Well, um, yeah, what, what's what the only other thing that I had that I, uh, wrote down in my notes was to talk about, the you know, the, the public mass shootings and, and whether we're, you know, we've had some great successes in police response uh, mm -hmm. in the last year, um, but it's still happening. And I'm a Second Amendment guy and the conflict between um, individual liberty and public safety is, uh, man, I, I don't know how we're going to solve that. Yeah, no, I for the record, I am a Second Amendment guy, too. But I think as far as firearms go, um, the idea that we just keep adding more and more gun laws, uh, restrictive gun laws. I think when we look at a city like Chicago with 700 homicides a year or Oakland with over 100 with you know such a small population every year, that we keep seeing the chronic offenders going yes. through the system, the turnstile, and sometimes with guns. And I don't think the public is that aware of the fact that you know, we, we, everybody's against guns, right? Politicians are against guns. Prosecutors are against guns. Everybody's against guns. But then we catch an offender with a firearm who's maybe even used the firearm or they use a firearm while they were out on probation or awaiting trial for another offense. And these guys keep getting multiple bites at the criminal justice apple. And right. I think that's got to stop. And and politicians, we know that they are they they yield to public pressure, public opinion, um, that it's unfair, especially against uh, a minority segment of young men in the community. And I think that attitude has to change with I, and I think, again, technology and innovation will if we could somehow go to a system where. People weren't judged by the color of their skin, their gender, their age, or what have you, but maybe a barcode that says barcode 138697B, uh, used a firearm, pistol whipped this guy, uh, stole all his money, and set fire to his house and left. That guy gets 30 years. Boom. Doesn't matter that if that guy, if that guy's a guy. But the idea that We've got to take the bias out and we've got to take the bias narrative out and go with these prosecutions. It, when you look at the the you know the devils in the details, 
we see that small minority number of offenders are the chronic repeat offenders that we can count on. Amazingly small percentage. Uh, Again, that police leadership needs to educate the public about what's really going on, uh, about prosecution, about firearms regulations, about um, demographics. All those things are are very critical uh, that that the factual, as I've said, fact lives matter, facts lives matter. and, and to, to get to get a factual, unbiased uh, narrative out there. You know, when, when we talk about minority populations, I've, I've said this for years, um, if you have a, a, a kid born uh, without good prenatal care into an impoverished family and their nutrition and their housing and their education and their family structure is inadequate, what are their pegmentation? Then the cops have a run-in with them at age 17. All of a sudden, the cops are racist. No, uh, and, I'm, and I'm not one of these. Uh, oh my gosh, there's there's uh, you know total inbred um, racism, but it it doesn't start with that traffic stop or or with that uh, a, a resisting arrest charge. It's it, it's a whole different issue that gets dumped in our lap, and then we take the blame for it, and it's just not it's just not fair. Hundred percent, hundred percent, and I mean, the concentration is on the attention to law enforcement: who's arrested, who's prosecuted, who's in jail or prison. When we should be looking at all the other factors of health and education and housing and employment and poverty. You're hundred percent right, and I think the the. Uh psychologicalization, I made that word up, of the criminal justice system is something that really needs some study. I mean, if we start excusing uh, behavior because of, you know, not to make light of mental illness uh, at at all, Uh, you know, we all have people close to us that are struggling, Um, but are we going to say, you know, pat on, pat you on the head, get an evaluation, have you treated, and then you're back out on the street. Um, I, I again, I don't know the answer to that, but this uh, the criminal justice forgiveness system is not sustainable. No, hundred percent, hundred percent with you. And then we're not surprised. And and you know, Bert Graham uh, says predictable is preventable, and. You know, there's that inside baseball that cops have when they open up the paper or they see on the news, this guy was arrested and, you know, you know his background, you've seen him before, uh, the the pattern is so similar that, you, you know, you could just change the name and the face and it is the same story of that cycle through the system. And you know better than most people that the prosecution and the convictions of individuals is the bar is so high for that, that the defense has all the everything going exculpatory evidence. And, you know, that one person that they've got to sway on the jury, they've got so much going for them that in order to get the conviction and then see that person out in three, six, nine months, when they should be doing five, 10, 15 years. It's just uh, tough to swallow. And, you know, when I read uh, uh, something about a first time offender, no, 
Do you want to know who's going to be in prison with about an 80% accuracy? And I made that number up, but I think it's probably pretty true. Ask any second grade public school teacher in this country. And they'll tell you, oh yeah, this kid. Now, my wife's been teaching long enough. She can read the headlines of people that are, uh, have been victims, um, drug overdose deaths, imprisoned violent offenders. And so there's there's got to be something down line, like the old uh, picture of, well, we keep rescuing people out of the rushing river and nobody's going up to see where are all these people falling into the river. You know? Right, right, I, right. I, I, there should be a fruit analogy for that. You're very good at that. I, I really appreciated your your uh, poetry today with the seeds and the fruit and the tree. And um, so I appreciate the way that you've uh, expressed all these things. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, the idea of of the the chronic offenders and the the usual suspects we have early warning systems for cops right we look at all the affecting uh issues that that contribute to the outcomes so yeah why why aren't we doing that from i mean you talked about it prenatal care i mean if you have an alcoholic or drug using mother that's passed on uh, socialization skills, reading to kids, nurturing, nutrition, you know, preschool vaccinations. Well, that's a sub subject. <laughs> but all of those things, yeah, they all count. They all matter when we have that 17, 16, 17, 18 year old first offender. You're hundred percent right there. Hey, I want to, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I, I was just going to say, my my uh, my daughter works with kids as a as a therapist, and she said everybody loves and has sympathy with kids until they turn about sixteen or seventeen, and then we just wait for them to go to prison. So, uh, yeah, just to uh, just just to expand on your thoughts there. Yeah. So real time crime centers. I had uh, a couple of great guests on the podcast this year. One from Elk Grove. Uh, Chula Vista's always had a robust uh, live 911 system where they get drones out ahead of officers to gauge uh, the situation, look for ambush points, look for uh, the offender leaving or hiding. Um, it, it also gives the opportunity for officers to talk in real time with the reportee or witnesses or victims. And so in smaller agencies, they may not have the personnel or the budget or the space to, to house a real-time crime center, but uh, counties can certainly consolidate those small towns, rural areas. I'm sure Kathleen Diaz, uh, the rural badge author, would appreciate throwing in the, the small town and rural officers uh, dilemma of not having access to this kind of capability. So why aren't they working with uh, a county umbrella to to bring everybody together? And maybe you bring in a civilian volunteer or a civilian sworn or somebody to add to the team to have a representative at the Real-Time Crime Center. Uh, there's so many advantages, uh, access to drones, to camera systems, to shot spotter, to license plate readers, uh, to real-time crime maps, uh, not just for crime events um, and not just for plotting the same locations over and over of, of crime occurrences, but also uh, for emergency management, 
for uh, real-time weather situations, uh, road closures, all, all those kinds of things that we could then push back out, not just to the cops, but to communities to say, stay off this road or stay out of this area or uh, shelter in place or evacuate immediately. So many advantages to real-time crime centers. Well, and, and uh, even old school, I, I should make that a drinking game every time I say old school, um, <laughs> just tactical approaches that are trained. Are we still training officers to screech up to a scene and hop out? Or, you know, because the, the, the two major elements of de-escalation or avoiding um, violent encounters is time and distance. And if you can slow some things down, get some intel, back when, you know, when, when uh, we started having ubiquitous cell phones, I tell the guys, call the complainant, you know, unless somebody's getting shot at or beaten up right this moment, call from a block away, ask what's going on, get some descriptions. Dispatch is not going to have all the information. They're going to give you the Reader's Digest version. Um, and so now that technology has these advantages of the, uh, you know, the surveillance, um, all under the specter of totalitarianism, you know, we don't want armed government agents to know too much about all things. Um, but I love uh, uh, license plate readers. I think they're a huge boon. Uh, drones, we, we probably haven't scratched the surface uh, of the utility for drones, both uh, interior uh, and exterior uh, surveillance and intel gathering. So, yeah, those are exciting developments. Yeah, and I had Blake Resnick on from Brink. And I mean, the drones that we, you know, they're not the drones that we saw five years ago or even a couple of years ago uh the brink drones are made in nevada they are u.s made and they've got the capability of hovering in place of going interior of uh, video and audio essentially a flying uh throw phone so many advantages to those uh types of of pieces of technology that are just scratching the surface, like you say, and, and they're going to be so useful. Um, I could think of probably a half dozen incidents where officers were shot or killed uh, when these things in place could have probably prevented uh, the ambushes or the attacks. So, you know, if, again, you know, I, I think about the DOJ, and, and we, we know they're quick to jump with uh, consent decrees, but <laughs> right. I wish they would add the incentives and, and grant funding to supply some of these things. And I think there's a big issue that probably not going to talk about today, but with, um, you know, foreign made drones and the idea that they may be picking up critical infrastructure, um, our, our operations, our techniques, our strategies, our infrastructure, all of that. And I think there's a move afoot to uh, bring the drone uh, back to the US, US made uh, that we could shut down any sort of backdoor um, uh, intelligence gathering on, on those parts. So you don't know of any SWAT teams that use Chinese balloons to... Uh... <laughs> nope. I'll just pick a few scabs here and there. <laughs> so, uh, so, so speaking of which, what about artificial intelligence? Would you see that? I mean, in schools, you know, I've seen uh, some situations where overnight uh, students are writing these 
uh, PhD type papers with the assistance of chat GPT. And uh, are we ever gonna see AI in, in those situations come to policing? Are we gonna see, I know prosecutors uh, don't like them and public defenders love to see boilerplate police reports uh, that say the same thing, insert address here, insert offender here, insert you know what evidence is found, fingerprints, blood, weapon, uh, whatever. Um, the boilerplate template reports are no bueno, wouldn't you agree? Yes, um, th th we're, we're gonna have to do some follow-up technology by we, somebody, um, to um, put some kind of um, watermark on, on the AI stuff. Um, you know, we had that concern with, uh, when I first used, started using body cams, I was just using uh, off the, uh, shelf things and then you know everybody said okay you need to make sure those can't be edited uh, and that they have uh, secure storage and that you don't superimpose somebody's face on somebody else's head and those are real uh, real issues um, that that are it, it's just like fire fire's great it, unless it's out of control the internet is wonderful uh, but it has decayed um, and so uh, it, 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 if, if we can know what's AI generated um, you know to some extent we all thought nobody's ever going to be able to do math in their head once everybody had the calculator you know in their pocket and that's become true right um, it, so it's a it's a balancing act. I mean, it's I'm sure it's a it's a great thing, but it's it's very scary, just like any new technology. Yeah, and we know some states uh, <laughs> have banned the use of facial recognition until they're a hundred percent right. I know that early on uh, turnouts of facial recognition software, um, you know, was spotty at best. I, I remember one. Uh, article that talked about uh, 40 members of Congress were put through AI and it found out that they, you know, that 90% of them had felony uh, warrants out or something like that, which I, I didn't think was wrong, but apparently it was. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but you get now, the now idea. I, now I'm wondering if I'm talking to a robot or not. You got me paranoid. <laughs> but the idea of, of other forms of AI, like crime mapping and actual crime prediction based on, you know, the history of an area or a location. Um, are we getting too far afield where we start putting too much concentration on an area that's unwarranted or that uh, we can be manipulated with the data? Well, we had the same problems uh, with the old fashioned pin map. Um, shot spotters have been taken down. Uh, because of, of uh, oh, you know, why are you always picking on this neighborhood? Hmm. Um, so it's, you know, just th this predictive policing thing is, um, you know, it's it's math, basically. You, you in statistics, if you have these factors at this frequency and this location. I remember years ago studying a map of Chicago where they overlaid the liquor licenses with the homicides. <laughs> and, you know, great correlation there. So... Um, it, it, you know, if it's, if it's facts, um, it, then it's facts.
So you're calling for uh, a repeal of the 21st Amendment. You're going back to the 18th. You know, we, we haven't explored historically all the good things that happened during those periods of large abstinence. I, I know the, the, the Baptists get uh, accused of starting organized crime because of the of prohibition, but there were a few things that were okay about that. All right. No, I'm not advocating it. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, what else you got? I've got one more, but uh, I want to give you the opportunity to jump in. Oh, go ahead with yours. I, I, I'd rather uh, rather knock yours around. Okay, so maybe we'll wrap up with this. And uh, I think we both have a lot to say about leadership being the key to everything. And when we talk about leadership, what comes to mind if people think the sheriff, the chief? Yeah, that's leadership. But leadership in the patrol car, leadership in a one-person patrol car, uh, doing the right thing, uh, you know, I think going back a little bit to 2020 uh, and recruiting and the recruits we're getting now, I, I really fear that anyone hired after 2020, the effect of March, April, May, June, July of 2020 really impacted our new cops. And so the idea of proactive policing seems by all accounts to be way down. And so are we starting a generation of cops that don't know about jumping out on three guys who we can articulate are gambling, selling drugs, drinking, uh, doing drugs, uh, casing a car, casing a, a vehicle or a storefront. Uh, are we losing that? And what about the leadership of senior officers? And, you know, we talked a little bit about it a few minutes ago about how aggressive do we want to be with qualified immunity dwindling? How how do we want to be aggressive when we know we might be in an area where we have a prosecutor who can't wait to prosecute a cop? So how do we fill that gap? Well, um, you know, the, the old adage, no contact, no complaint, has never been more real uh, in terms of decision making on the street. And and I, I hadn't made the connection that, that you made, which I think is brilliant. Um, no contact, no contagion for those that came on in the in 2020. So um, the, the the leadership issue, it is very important that it's local um but but you can't get quality leadership downline if you don't have it upline um i was reading an article by jim glennon the other day he said he used to get uh lots of calls and did lots of training in ethics and he said nobody calls nobody cares anymore i mean that's a that's a perhaps an over exaggeration of his conclusion but whatever happened to ethics um and I've learned in my police leadership career that if, if you don't go into a job willing to be fired, um, then you're going to compromise because of the uh, political nature and lack of job protection in statutes in most places uh, for for the chief. It, it It's definitely a trickle down economics when it comes to leadership. I'm glad you qualified that with the chief, the chief being 
not assuming the position unless they're willing to be fired or right right yeah no and i think that's so important to our troops today and i mean across the board i know we have some agencies where we did that police one survey a few years back 4000 respondents and only 7% said that they would advocate for others to join their agency and wow 7% i was blown away by that yeah and they certainly wouldn't recommend that their uh initial relatives their sons daughters spouses would join their agency and i think that again is reflective on our leadership and then we have uh you know sheriff down at the border of uh, New Mexico, I think it's Cochise County, uh, Sheriff Daniels, who says he's got people lined up going into his department. And and he's a great guy, and he is 100% behind his troops. He has stood up against some, uh, some federal uh, issues and opinions about how he should be uh, patrolling down there on the border. And so I think when you have that kind of leadership, uh, you have your your officers, your men and women on your force uh, that that will do uh, what you ask them to do, that that do the right thing, that would recommend the job uh, to anybody uh, at their agency. And I think um, it's so important that leaders are willing to do that. And we talked about leadership for years. And in 2020, uh, it'd be interesting to see how many chiefs and sheriffs stepped down, probably not a lot of sheriffs because they're elected, but I did see a lot of chiefs leaving. And, and you know, I'm sorry for those who had planned to leave in 2020, but it seemed like we had a, an extraordinary amount of chiefs leaving in 2020 when things got really tough. And, and I would add to that, um, you know, we've had tremendous success, I think, percentage wise of um, non-white male chiefs. Uh, in the country, uh, females, African Americans, um, other other backgrounds, and uh, they were not immune to those political pressures. And I thought it was particularly tragic when we lose um, a, a black police chief, uh, lose a female police chief, um, in 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 thinning out the the ranks that we have as a profession for 30 years really tried to promote uh, and they're getting uh, metaphorically shot down um, uh, along with the you know a, a bunch of other leaders and thank god for elected sheriffs that we still have uh, at least four years barring a recall uh, maybe in new mexico it's two years um, where where they can operate and just do the right thing and wait for the ballot box to to vote on whether people appreciate their style or not yeah and, and i talk about job security because you know i'm three for three in the chief world as far as getting getting fired well that should be three badges of courage for you absolutely that's the way i narrated anyway <laughs> No, believe me, I've I've been on a couple of uh, what what some of my peers called uh, career killer um, uh, quests that uh, you know you do it for the right reason and and take the criticism and and it's funny because oftentimes they criticize the person and not the policy. So I figured anytime that was happening, then uh, you know I was doing a good job. 
But well, let, uh, me ask, let me ask a personal question. Yeah. Uh, you were at the high echelon, did you, but not chief, right? Right. Did you aspire to be chief or did you say, I've got a job I think I can keep at this level? I was a 40 year old commander and captain is our last civil service rank. So I was promoted by one chief uh, to a commander at 40. And I was thinking that then like, holy smokes, how do I get through this job for another 10 years? But then I quickly got over that because you could be paralyzed, right? The uh, paralyzation by analyzation of everything, you know, can this get me fired? And so you, you can't think that way. So <laughs> two years later, I got fired. No, two years later, I was demoted <laughs> back to captain by an incoming chief who was directed by the mayor to clean house. So fine, I went back and I'll tell you this though, as a captain, I kept my head up kept working hard, kept, you know, supporting my people. And then another four years later, we got a new chief. Uh, he promoted me to commander. A couple of years later, another new chief came in and promoted me to deputy chief right below the chief rank. And I really enjoyed that role because I still had hands-on in a lot of things. I got the opportunity to cultivate some of the captains under my command. And it was a good job. I did apply for chief uh, when uh, they were looking for a new chief in my last two years. Um, did wasn't selected. It is a selection process by the police commission and then the mayor, and uh, the chief is uh, selected. And it's a political position. And and some part of me is glad that I didn't get it because I'm not a, a political guy and. Uh, you know, as long as I've been doing the podcast, I've been accused by uh, there, there's a, a rating on Apple uh, that says this this left leaning liberal guy from San Francisco. <laughs> and in San Francisco, I am like an ultra conservative. So I, bet. I can't play politics. Uh, I just, you know, shoot from the hip like you. Uh, I totally believe in our Constitution. I believe in in our laws. I believe there's a correlation between enforcement and crime. Um, and I, I think we should all be doing as best as we can, regardless of how we, you know, how secure we feel in our position. So I wish, and I see some great chiefs out there um, and I've had them on the show. Uh, Jason Potts in uh, uh, Las Vegas is just doing a phenomenal job. I've got Dave Norris down here in Menlo Park and, uh, these guys are out front. They're using social media. Sheriff Daniels, as I mentioned, uh, they support their troops. They push their troops forward for recognition. They're not taking the credit. They're pushing the guys. Um, Pocatello, Idaho, um, the, the, the chief there is just phenomenal in getting his uh, local uh uh, university students involved in his department. And uh, we've seen examples like that across the country. And I think, you know, in, in trying times, right, we see people stand above the rest, and I hope right. that they can be inspirations to others. Well, you know, and just a little anecdote, I did a ride along with uh, LAPD years ago, um, out of the Hollenbeck station. And uh, I was treated like royalty because I was a small mountain town Colorado chief 
and it was like a god coming out of the clouds it just looked like that was everybody's aspiration i'm going to retire get out of la move to colorado and be a chief in a small town and and many of them have have done that um but it, it's 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 precarious it's a real challenge and and like you like you say if if uh, people are willing to stand up and do the right thing and, and take the hits uh that's gold that that's that's life-changing yeah and believe me the troops know it they they see it they recognize it and they also recognize you know, it's a harsh word but they recognize cowardice right they recognize mm -hmm. someone who fronts officers or stays silent um probably for political reasons <clears throat> i think um one of the things that we we really fall down and it's not just chiefs or sheriffs but i think it's some of the police organizations when we see bad legislation, we should fight it tooth and nail. We Absolutely. should fight it like a murder rap. And instead, we we allow it to happen. And uh, one of the things I I just did an article on uh, six ways to reduce pedestrian and um, driver fatalities, uh, civilians, and especially police officers, because it's, it's one of the leading cop killers. But some of the legislation that we've seen, um, you know, in in uh, refusing to allow officers to stop vehicles for minor infractions, to stop pretext stops, uh, to uh, to repeal some laws like uh, in California in January, we have the freedom to walk, which is I call it the freedom to jaywalk law that essentially says unless the person is injured or caused an accident, you can't issue a citation. So I guess the, the measure is if you make it from one side of the street to the other unscathed, then it was okay. Um, it's hard to give a citation to somebody being loaded into the back of an ambulance, but that's essentially what this legislation did. And so in California, if I were to ask you of the 50 states, which state leads almost annually in pedestrian injuries and fatalities which state take a guess uh you california right and the idea behind the law was that uh stopping people for jaywalking was used as a tool uh to uh approach black and brown segments of the community right if you look at the epidemiology the the people most likely to be injured or killed in vehicle accidents, pedestrians, which segment of the community by large uh, in California, black and brown the community. We, the ones that you try to protect by enforcing the law. Yeah, so I mean, how that ever got to uh, the governor's signature in January beyond me, but again, I think we need to get together. We need to inform the community. We need to bring people like Vision Zero together, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, anybody who's an advocate for uh, pedestrian vehicle enforcement, bring them up, ask them to, to stand with you and oppose these kinds of laws or repeals of laws. I think, you know, I don't know how long we're going to wait because we see high numbers, uh, rising numbers of injuries and fatalities. It's at some point, I, I think they've got to look at repealing that. Yeah, I, I don't know whatever happened to the concept of the enforcement index, which you, you know, 
there's a relationship between holding people accountable and having bad things happen. Uh, and, and that, again, it's a, it's a math question. It's a statistic question. Uh, how, how that escapes um, uh, policymakers is, is just astounding. Yeah, and 15,000 to 17,000 annual deaths on the roadway would indicate that something's got to be done. And the fact that uh, in those injuries and fatalities, that a third of the drivers or pedestrians, one of the two, uh, has had uh, uh, exceeding levels of alcohol and or other impairments in their system. So it's there. It's important. I wish legislators would recognize it. I, I hope cops see that correlation and the need to, to keep up enforcement on traffic uh, laws and especially driving under the influence of alcohol or drugs. I, I was in Honduras on a military mission in the 1980s, and I came back uh, more convinced than ever about the importance of traffic laws. Um, and I don't know what it is down there, and we were far from, from any uh, uh, urban area, um, but uh, we weren't allowed to drive at night. We, we, were, we were off the roads. So you had to, if you were going up the mountain in the sunset, um, you bivouacked because it's, it just wasn't safe. And, and you'd see these uh, vehicles careering down the mountain roads with uh, one headlight. And, and uh, <laughs> you know, so to say, oh, it's just a minor traffic violation. You know, um, again, it, it just adds up to statistics and um, in, in keeping people safe. And, and, you know, we can talk about pretext stops um, as a as a crime intervention with traffic stops, but 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 traffic enforcement for the sake of traffic enforcement has its own merit without coming across drugs and dead bodies and illegal weapons. For sure. Well, I think we're going to wrap up. I know there's so many other issues we could talk about that are going to carry into 2024. Uh, Certainly, we're seeing more and better mental health and wellness support for law officers and their families, family support and resources. Uh, we could talk about cold cases, uh, quick DNA, cold case assistance, uh, virtual reality training that we didn't really touch on, and so many more uh, in the way of technology uh, assistance uh, and training. We didn't really get much into training, but... Um, Technology can help with training, and training should be on the 2024 priority of every agency. And if you're at an agency where you're not hearing about training, uh, speak up, you know, slip that note under the chief's door and say, hey, you know, uh, WTT, what about what the heck about training or something? Some <laughs> well, if, if, if you want to get my blood pressure up, we can talk about post boards and their requirements. I'm, I'm convinced that, that they are uh, backdoor funded by Microsoft PowerPoint um, software. I, I, they, they were a great thing that came about in the 70s and 80s of necessity. Um, but they are stuck in the 70s and 80s and what they require in terms of our measuring things by hours rather than competencies, uh, the type of media that's allowed, the type of teaching uh, instructor ratios. A lot of good obviously came out of that. I'm a pre-post guy, um, so I, I could get grandfathered in. And when I did go to the academy, it was 120 hours. So um, 
So we've come a long way, but but there's a lot of impediments in the, in our state's capitals with post boards um, who are who are stuck in in uh, old school ways. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know if we if we're going to stick to the hour measurement, and I think the hour measurement is good. It was a tool that was used, <clears throat> excuse me, against us in the 2020 argument about police training and how. Uh, aestheticians or beauticians were required to have more hour training uh, to curl hair and, and do nails uh, than police officers. So that was used against us. I think we could definitely fill in those hours with uh, video training, uh, virtual reality training. And of course, it doesn't take place of real in-person training. But I think the repetition to get you thinking about what you would do in some of these situations. I think that's really valuable. Like if you get to someone, a suicidal person uh, on a ledge or on a rooftop or over a bridge, uh, what do you say beyond five minutes or 10 minutes? And I think those kinds of situations, the repetition give you more ideas of what you could do or, or give you some cues of what to look for as far as, uh, and I think more is coming on pre-incident nonverbal cues, facial, uh, body movements, uh, all of those things with the hands, of course. But I think virtual reality can really, really help as far as um, if we're going to give them hours of training, let them do it. If we don't stick uh, 80s and 90s learning philosophies into uh, 2023 technology, right? So I was on the curriculum committee for the post board here in Colorado. Uh, so there's curriculum, shooting, fighting, driving. Um, and I said, hey, could we get together with the shooting, driving, uh, fighting people? Because uh, they never meet. And, and so, you know, do you wait till the officer's out on the street to determine on a car stop, use of force, uh, verbal communication, de-escalation, uh, traffic law, criminal law, constitutional law, they're all siloed. Uh, and, and maybe that's changed since I haven't, I resigned from that committee twice in, in frustration. Um, so yeah, we, training's, training's got to be changed. And we get this politicized uh, curriculum where you have to cram these uh, touchy-feely things in when the real critical stuff um, you know, low incident, high liability kinds of things sometimes has to suffer. Yeah. Um, and, and we try to keep in many communities, at least in Colorado, a lot of our pre-service training is, is done self-sponsored in uh, college environments, uh, which means that we need to get everything crammed into 15 weeks to be concurrent with the semester in the academic world. And that means, you know, if we get X number of hours and we've got to push something in here, we're going to push something out there. So, so you got me started. Oh, that we'll save that for another show. All I think right. we should. Yeah. Keep your notes. Joel Schultz, always a pleasure. I look forward to debating with you in 2024 and having some more uh, interviews like this to talk about things that are popping up. So many things that we could have talked about today that uh, I hope to discuss in the future with you. Well, thank you for your service. Uh, you know, the years beyond the badge, you're uh, uh, influencing thousands of people through this effort and your teaching. So thank you for your continued service. Thanks, Joel. I appreciate that. 
Hey, to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed the show. And if there was anything you didn't like, you can attribute it to Joel. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Probably accurately, yes. Just kidding. Drop me an email at policingmatters at policeone.com. Joel will definitely get a look at it, as will I and our just, just... such a great editor that we have, Nancy Perry. I want to acknowledge Nancy's service uh, in our written uh, achievements. They aren't achievements by the time I get them to her. Hey, we're, jo- both, we're both award winners, right? We are award winners. And actually, uh, Nancy's an award winner as well as being a, a superb editor. So if you get a chance, check uh, out the other work that we've done on Police One in the articles and in our debate called State Your Case, where we take a a subject and uh, Joel and I get uh, one side of the issue or the other and try to come up with uh, some articulable points to support or shoot it down. Check us out. All right. Hey, have a great year. Stay safe through the holidays and hope you check in with us. In 2024, we've got some great things coming your way. Stay safe, take good care. See you soon.